These words from Deuteronomy are called the Shema in the Jewish faith. They're the first words that children learn, the first thing, the first words that are memorized. By devout Jews, they are prayed at least twice a day. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Often when they pray these words, they also cover their eyes when they pray them. One writer said they cover their eyes because because they want to take it in and not be distracted when they say the words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. They cover their eyes because after they've said those words and they take their hand away from their eyes, they are then able to see the world in a different way. To imagine what it might be like where this reality is present in the world. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. The core command is, is this full encounter, full contact encounter with God. And this passage, this command to love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your might becomes this, this sounding bell that rings over and over in Scripture. The conversation of the law, the conversation of the prophets, the revelation of Jesus, is this constant conversation of what does it mean to tune our lives to these words? What does it mean to live with these embodied You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Is this the conversation you find yourself engaged in? Is love of God the shape of your life? Or do you at least long for it to be? I think I love one of the saints that says, I I want to want to love God. And sometimes that's about as much as we can muster, right? I can see it, and I want to want that. But this conversation, how to live a fully embodied, full contact love of God in our lives, is the conversation that we're invited to. All along the way, saints and mystics, those who have been active in the world and those who have removed themselves in seclusion, they have come back over and over to say this is the conversation that we are invited to. You may have discovered by now that one of my favorite writers and thinkers um, is a 20th century priest uh, named Teilhard de Chardin, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin. He uh, was 
a Jesuit priest, and uh, he was also a paleontologist. He worked on the Peking Man Dig in China. But one thing that I love about Teilhard is that his, um, his theology and his view of the world was formed in the trenches of World War I. He was just about to uh, enter the priesthood when he was enlisted to be in the war, and he became a stretcher-bearer, first in North Africa, and then he requested to be moved to the front line in Europe. And so he was carrying the stretchers of these millions, as Ellen was saying, millions of people, men that were dying. He was ministering to them. There's a photo online of him giving mass in, the, in 1917, in the middle of the war. And out of that experience, he developed this deep conviction that the primary energy of this world is love. He wrote these words less than a year after Armistice Day. He wrote them as he reflected on what he had experienced and what the... the the stark reality of being in those trenches had taught him. And this is how he describes a person who has the love of God at the front of his life, who engages with this call and this conversation. And I apologize for the masculine language, but it was 1919 after all, so... He saw before his eyes, revealed with pitiless clarity, the ridiculous pretentiousness of human claims to order the life of the world, to impose on the world the dogmas, the standards, the conventions of men. The one who loved God tasted sickeningly the triteness of men's joys and sorrows the mean egoism of their pursuits, the insipidity of their passions, the attenuation of their power to feel. The one who confronts the love of God felt pity for those who take fright at the span of a century or whose love is bounded by the frontiers of a nation. So many things that which once had distressed or revolted him, the speeches and pronouncements of the learned, their assertions and their prohibitions, their refusal to allow the universe to move, all seemed to him now merely ridiculous, non-existent, compared with the majestic reality, the flood of energy which now revealed itself to him, omnipresent, unalterable in its truth, relentless in its development, untouchable in its serenity, maternal and unfailing in its protectiveness. How does one emerge from those trenches with such a vision of love and a vision of God? It's because Teilhard was engaged in this conversation. 
in asking himself, what does it mean in my life to love God with all of my heart and soul and might? And in that conversation found God meeting him as this force of love. As we imagine what it might be like for us to join this conversation, to live a life of full contact with love for God, and we reflect on Teilhard's words, and we're here on the 100th anniversary of Armistice Day, it's fair to say that the love of God cannot be something that's just for us alone. It can't just be about me and my private relationship with God. That indeed the way we see this love of God lived out in the world is by those who are working and acting for peace. Peace is the fruit of living in this conversation. There is no true peace without love. There is no journey into love without being a peacemaker. Jean-Paul Lederach is a professor at Notre Dame, and he teaches peacemaking. He's a Mennonite writer, and he's worked in some of the biggest conflicts in the world to, to mediate peace in places like Colombia and South America. And he says that there are four components of peacemaking that I want to share with you today. Four words. The first is relationship. The second is complexity. The third is creativity. And the fourth is risk. Relationship, complexity, creativity, and risk. What he means by relationship is that in order to live and to be people of peace in this world, we have to know that we're connected to each other. We have to live in that inescapable network of mutuality that Dr. King spoke about. We have to live that reality of of loving our neighbor as ourselves. We have to embody, as as Terre de Chardin, a love that goes beyond the frontiers of our people group or our nation or our small circle of intimates. Second, you must embrace complexity. I know I am longing for some complexity these days with a conversation about red states and blue states and all of the ways that people are dividing themselves on these issues and refusing to talk to each other because they can't live in that space where we can come together and hear each other. Peacemakers are able to hold paradoxical ideas in both one in each hand and wait for the deeper truth to emerge, to enter the conversation of love, to live into these words in the Shema is to refuse the either or and to insist on the both and. Third, he says you must make space for creativity. Walter Brueggemann once said that every totalitarian regime is afraid of the artist. Creativity and beauty open up new possibilities in the world. I remember um, when my daughter was in middle school, she was working on a paper on civil rights. 
And uh, she was working really hard on this paper. She was so wanting it to be just right. And so she was going in on her recess to work with her teacher, and she was coming home and, and talking to me, and she finally turned this paper in that she felt really proud of. And she said to me, Mom, you and my teacher gave me great words. I love that. You gave me great words. And this is what creativity does. When we open spaces of beauty and creativity in the world, we give the world great and different words. We help ignite an imagination beyond the divisions and the polarities that we're living in. And last, the last word is risk. You must risk in order to live as a peacemaker. We want the way of peace and love to be smooth sailing. And I often hear, oh, you know, you're so naive to believe that. But actually, this is one of the, the hardest things to embody and to live out in the world. We humans hold too easily to, to the comfort of feeling that we're right and others are wrong. And we build these huge systems to entrench ourselves in our belief. And the call of the scripture is to risk, to risk love, to risk peace. I want to close today by sharing the story of Uslam Sevik. It's a brand new TED Talk that came out, I think, just this month. Uslam is a Danish member of parliament who was born in Turkey to Kurdish parents. When she became an MP, a member of parliament, she began to receive regular messages of hate in her email box. And she started to just delete them. And one time, and, and then as the information got out, uh, she began to get text messages on her phone as well. And one time she was at the zoo with her children and these text messages kept coming in faster and faster to such an extent that she felt that someone who was threatening her may be close by. And so she had to leave the zoo with her children and go home. And her, her son said to her, you know, why do people hate you so much, Mom? And he, she said, oh, you know, they're just stupid. Don't worry about it. But one day a friend of her challenged her to start to reach out and meet with these people that had sent her these emails. When she responded that they would kill her, she said, he said, well, they would never attack a member of the Danish parliament. And anyways, if they killed you, you would be a martyr. So it's a win-win situation for you. <laughs> so here's what she did in her words. His advice was so unexpected, when I got home, I turned on my computer and opened the folder where I had saved all the hate mail. After she had deleted them, then she had started saving them because someone said she needed the evidence in case something happened to her. There were literally hundreds of them. Emails that started with words like terrorist, raghead, rat, whore. I decided to contact the one who had sent me the most. His name was Ingolf. I decided to contact him just once so I could say at least I had tried. To my surprise and shock, he answered the phone. I blurted out, hello, my name is Uslam. You have sent me so many hate mails. You don't know me. I don't know you. I was wondering if I could come around and we can drink a coffee together and talk about it. There was silence on the line. And he said, I have to ask my wife. 
<laughs> what, she says, the racist has a wife? A couple of days later, we met at his house. I will never forget when he opened his front door and reached out to shake my hand. I felt so disappointed because he looked nothing like I'd imagined. I had expected a horrible person, a dirty, messy house. It was not. His house smelled of coffee, which was served from a coffee set identical to the one my parents used. I ended up staying for two and a half hours. And we had so many things in common. Even our prejudices were alike. Ingoff told me that when he waits for the bus and the bus stops 10 meters away from him, it was because the driver was a raghead. I recognized that feeling when I was young and I waited for the bus and it stopped 10 meters away from me. I was sure that the driver was a racist. When I got home, I was very ambivalent about my experience. On the one hand, I really liked Ingolf. He was easy and pleasant to talk to, but on the other hand, I couldn't stand the idea of having so much in common with someone who was such, had such clearly racist views. Gradually and painfully, I came to realize that I had been just as judgmental of those who had sent me hate mails as they had been of me. This has begun a dialogue where the past, for the past eight years, Islam has been having what she calls hashtag dialogue coffee. She sits down with people who have said hateful things about her and tries to understand them. She meets with them always in their house to let them know that she trusts them. And she always brings food so that they'll have to eat together. She ends with this advice, start a conversation. Trenches have been dug between people, yes, but we all have the ability to build bridges that cross the trenches. Do you see those four elements in her story? Do you see the relationship in her actions? She sees herself in relationship with those who have declared themselves her enemies. Do you see the complexity? Her enemies drink coffee from the same coffee pot that her parents used. They both see racism when the bus starts, stops too far away. Despite their differences, they are bound together. Do you see the creativity? Meeting them in their home, bringing food as an act of hospitality, the creative act which brings together a new possibility. And do you see the risk? It's obvious. She exposes herself to those who have said they hate her. But she is in it. She is in that journey of love. She is a peacemaker. And in that journey, her journey and ours is our hope. I'll let Teilhard Chardin's prayer have the last word. Raise me up then to those heights, through struggle and separation and death. Raise me up until at long last it becomes possible for me in perfect love to embrace the universe. Amen. Let's sing together.